Hello, Bookstu viewers. I actually have a real live guest in the studio with me today for the first time in quite a while. Um, it's funny, now I have to ask a guest who's going to come on to the show. Um, have you been vaccinated? Which is something I never would have contemplated a year ago that I would be asking people. And um, my guest today, Jane Healy, tells me she's had one shot and she is not going to be the person who doesn't get a second shot. She's going to get her second shot when she's supposed to. So I'd like to welcome back to Bookstew for the third time, Jane Healy, who uh, I'm so glad lives locally, was able to come in person, and is promoting her third novel, which um, I think uh, you'll really enjoy if you get a hold of it. It's just come out very recently. And it's called The Secret Stealers. I hold it up. Jane can hold it up. So <laughs> welcome, Jane. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for having me. This is so exciting, an in-person event. It's so amazing. So how zoomed out are you? Oh, so zoomed out. <laughs> like my whole family. We're all zoomed out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was on a, I've been taking classes on Zoom, um, like adult education classes, and <laughs> I was on one yesterday and I hated the way my hair looked and so I wouldn't turn my camera on and there were only 20 people and it, I was the only one who didn't have my camera on so when we had a break in the class I ran in and like foodled with my hair so it looked decent to turn my no. camera on. But you have to be like camera ready all the time. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to leave my camera off for this. No, I cannot leave my camera off. And I have, um, I kind of overbooked myself this week. I actually have like six Zoom events this <sighs> week, which is, it's a lot to like be on and makeup and hair. Like you said, hair. I usually wear a baseball cap most of the time. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> it takes a little work. So um, when you, st you started actually writing The Secret Stealers, how long ago? Um, about two years, I want to say. Like, you know, when, around the time that the Beantown Girls came out, I had started working on the proposal for this one. So, yeah, it was about two years ago. And so, who, of course, could have anticipated these circumstances for trying to promote a book during uh, a pandemic? Right? Yes, I know. But I know there must be upsides in a way because. Um, other than traveling all around the country, which maybe you liked or didn't like before, maybe looks good at this point, <laughs> now you can reach out to so many more people who would not get to see you in person. So how do you feel about that? I think that has been one of the silver linings of the pandemic, actually. I, I have been, for the past year, you know, connecting with book clubs in all over the U.S., all over Canada. Um, libraries all over the country, organizations all over the country because of the Beantown Girls. I've been doing a lot of Zoom events with um, Red Cross chapters, oh, wow. which has been cool. So that is that has been great. I've been doing my own webinars, um, including interviewing author friends once a month, and um, and so that and we've gained a pretty good following doing that type of stuff. So that that being able to connect that way, I think everyone. I mean, we're so zoomed out, like, but we're also so comfortable with Zoom, mm. and we're so comfortable with virtual events now, like any demographic, any age, you know. So that's been nice. I think that's the if there's any silver lining to this, that's that's one of them. And uh, the drawbacks, obviously, are Zoom fatigue. What else yes. is? Um, what else have you found to be difficult about uh, promoting your book when you can't? Do you miss the uh, like we have eye contact? We're yeah. in the same room. It's so nice. 
you must kind of miss that, even though at book readings there's always that one weird guy who sits <laughs> in the front who says, do you use a pen or a pencil? Or right, right. Some, so you don't have to, well, even though now you have to deal with those people on Zoom, but how much do you miss the actual, like, being able to look into people's eyes? Uh, well, because it's been a year now, I miss it quite a bit. I, you know, the, when the world shut down, I think I had like two dozen events scheduled for summer, sp spring and summer, and um, and and haven't had any since. So, so now I really do like that that personal human connection. You cannot replicate over a screen. Um, you just can't. It's and so. I, you know, I'm looking. I'm so glad we can do this. I have my first in-person book club tomorrow night because they've all been vaccinated, Yay. and I've been half vaccinated, so that's huge. And, and in fact, it was a book club, a local book club, and it was the last book club I did. It was on like March first. Oh, <laughs> yeah, wow! So it's so amazing. They must be so happy that you're coming. Yeah, back. yeah. Great. They're local. A few of them are from Melrose, where I live, and and so so I'm excited for that. But I feel like. We're getting there, right? There's a light at the end of the tunnel now. Um, people are getting more comfortable with in-person events again because people are getting vaccinated. So um, I'm excited for, for in-person again. I wonder if for your next book will be, uh, but see, I don't see us really going back in a way because um, Zoom lets so many more people in that couldn't necessarily or wouldn't travel to an event. But I don't want to think that it's the end of bookstore and library readings forever because that would be so sad because then you get no personal interaction with the author. I agree. I think that, and I think after all of this is over, I think people are really going to be craving those type of events mm -hmm. again. So I think it'll be a balance, though. I think there'll be, you know, I don't think we'll totally go back to just in person. I think now that we're all comfortable with Zoom and virtual events, there'll be more of those. But I think that people really, really are craving that human interaction. So I have to, so let's talk a little bit about the Secret Stealers. So you've kind of plunged more into the World War II era from the Beantown Girls to here. Yeah. Um, I find that in a lot of um, contact with people who love to read, especially women, um, historical fiction set around World War II and also um, concentration camp stuff seems to be a, a very big appeal. Where, where do you think that comes from? You know, I, I think there is a big appeal. I think that, uh, you know, I, I worry a little bit because the market's pretty, there's a lot of World War II books out there right now and more coming. Um, but I think that part of the appeal is because we are losing that generation. You know, there's mm -hmm. only a few of those uh, members of that generation who really experienced the war, whether it was here or whether they were serving overseas. Most of those people are gone. There's not many left, and so I think there's that kind of. But and yet we have fa all of us have family stories about um, parents or grandparents who experienced World War II. So I, I think that's a big part of it. Like it's a, it's history, but it's pretty close history, you know, to, to where we're at now. That's a, that's a good point. History, but close history. I also think that um, when I talk to my mother about it, my mother's 93 and oh, wow. she's still around. Hi, mom. And uh, she didn't serve, but she, I, I always ask her questions about World War II. And my, I, the first question I can really remember us uh, talking and thinking, talking together and thinking about was, I asked her if she really thought at any point that the United States was going to lose the war, really that Britain was going to lose or France was going to lose, because that happened first mm -hmm. uh, before and all before Pearl Harbor and she said yes she said we really yes we w she said it wasn't that we thought we were going to lose it it was that we didn't know if we were going to win or not 
which mm -hmm. I thought was a really interesting thing to say. So maybe that's another lure of these type of books because it was also a time when the country obviously came together. You yes. know, there wasn't nothing, you know, there was no politicization of it. You have you had to go fight the Nazis and um, the Japanese at the time and, and there wasn't, nobody argue, really argued. I'm, I know there were arguments about whether to get into the war or not, right. but after Pearl Harbor there weren't any. Well, yeah, no, that's a good point. I, I think that the country was united and it was a very, you know, it was very black and white in terms of, there was no choice, they, you know, in terms of who, who needed to win. But you're right, they, you know, think writing this book, um, a you know, a lot of them didn't, not only did they not know if they would win, if the, if the allies would win, but when it was going to end, mm. like they were, you know, and I think that, um, you know, I was talking to the author Lauren Wick Willig, she just wrote Band of Sisters, which is, takes place in World War One, and I think people are drawn to these stories um, because um, they have, a, you know, the, the ending is, we know the ending historically, but the ending, it ends on an, a positive note. There's a, there's hope at the end, you know, and That's I think that- That's another good point. And it also talks about how, like, we, as a country have been through difficult times and come out the other side before, you know, and I think that's an, another point in World War One and World War Two, and um, people really are craving that kind of hope, I think, right now in stories. Yeah, especially since we don't know when this whole situation with us is going to That's end. right. So do you find that, um, I know your audience and your readership is probably mostly women, but do men attend your events too? Because of, I mean, men read about sports and war and history and yes. that's you know most i hate to i don't hate to make you know generalizations that's really the truth that's how you attract male readers so um is the fact that you always have a, a great romance going on is that do you think that's problematical for male readers or did they just get caught up in the history do you think well that's an excellent question i you know I, there was a couple i had a book club last night and there was about 35 people on it from a local library and there was a, a couple of guys in the group and they had read all three books, which I was really thrilled and flattered. Um, but I have found with, with Secret Stealers, it's been interesting in terms of readers' response from, I get emails from readers and, and reviews, and they've been, I probably had more reviews and, and emails from men with this book uh -huh. than the other two combined, quite honestly. And that's really encouraging. I think it's because it has the um, kind of espionage spy aspect, uh, you know, that, that history. And, th and, and that there's no girls in the title. Yeah, right? no girls in the title, <laughs> although it is like pink, you know, <laughs> pink font. True, but, but, it, but that's not okay. the whole thing. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly. So I think that that appeals to men, that aspect. Also, one of the main characters of the book is a per real person in history, General William Donovan, who founded the OSS um, Office of Strategic Services, which is what the book is about. And he was a big World War One hero. He was just a really fascinating character in history, and I, um, men seem to be really drawn to that aspect of the story as well. So I know you weren't scheming to include him because of male no, readers. No, no, no. But I think one of the strengths of all of your books, to me, has been your flawless combining of real people with fictional oh, characters. You. I think I, not everybody can do that and make it believable. Um, so uh, let's tell the, uh, the viewers a little bit about the story itself. So Anna Kavanaugh is the lead character, and uh, she, uh, through the death of her husband, has come to uh, want to get her life on a different track. And happily, 
her, her, a big family friend of hers is um, the character you just mentioned, the real life person you just mentioned, yes. Wild Bill. So um, did you start with, with him or how early did he come into the story and how did you get to the OSS? Was it from Beantown Girls or was it a completely separate? Your research, I know, is, I know you spent so much time researching and it really shows. Oh, thank you very much. So this, the kind of origins of this story came from an article, I, a couple of articles I had found and filed away as, you know, pe sometimes people send me ideas, sometimes people send me videos. I, so I just kind of put everything in, anytime I run across something like, oh, that could be a story idea, I put it in a folder on my computer. and. Um, there was an, a couple of articles in the Washington Post, and one of them was this article about these two women, Doris Borer and Elizabeth McIntosh, Betty McIntosh, and they were 88 and 93. The article was from over 10 years ago, and they had moved into this retirement community outside of Washington, D.C., and became friends. They lived on the same street, found out they were both undercover agents with the OSS, during World War II, and one had, and then they went on to serve in the CIA, which is what the OSS evolved into, and had never met each other, like had mm. never crossed paths before. Um, partly because Betty was in Asia, she was working on what they called black propaganda against the Japanese to try to convince the Japanese that things were not going their way, and um, and Doris was working in Italy as an undercover agent, analyzing aerial photographs of what the Nazis were building. So really fascinating. And that was the first time I knew of the SOE, the women of the SOE who had, who had served as undercover agents. That's the British kind of counterpart to the OSS that had served in uh, World War II as agents. I hadn't really been aware of women of the OSS. And, the, and not only of the women of the OSS, but the fact that any of them had served undercover overseas. And so that was really the origins of the story. And so I started researching, and of course, William Donovan is the first thing that comes up um, because he really built it from scratch. He was friends with Roosevelt, and Roosevelt said, we need some sort of espionage organization just like the SOE, and I'm gonna tap you to do it. And, and he built it from scratch up to 13,000 people at its height, and he really had, in the beginning especially, he tapped into his network. So he was upper class, Ivy League guy, uh, you know, lawyer in New York City, and he, so he tapped into, you know, a lot of Ivy Leaguers ended up working for the OSS in the early days, a lot of upper class, to the point that it was called oh so snobby, <laughs> or oh so social, um, because it had that kind of mystique, you know, it was, it, they were, uh, but, and that changed over time, but in the beginning, he just was hiring anyone, he, he, he couldn't do all, tons of background checks, there wasn't time, so he had to hire people he could trust and had some sort of network connection with. So, so um, the one of the most enjoyable parts, uh, and you know, almost really half the book takes place in France and in Paris. Yes. Ha so have you? I mean, y your familiarity and your the character Anna's love of uh, Paris and France comes through very clearly. Do you share that? Oh, yes, I okay. really do. I can't wait to go back. <laughs> yes, I do. And I had been there um, several times before writing the novel, but it, when it became clear that uh, the novel was going to take, a lot of the novel was going to take place in Paris, um, I went back in October 2019, like specifically to do research for the book for about a week. And, um, and I found a historian over there who specialized, he's a professor, Nigel Perrin, who's British. I took my husband because he's 
speaks fluent French too, so that's helpful. Ah. Um, and Nigel does guided walking tours, and he specializes in the spaces of uh, that were important in uh, like spatial like buildings and locations that were important for, to the French resistance during when Paris was occupied. So. He was my guy, you know, and I, I had a lot of things I wanted to see. There were some museums I wanted to see, but the day I spent with Nigel and we walked for hours all over the city, seeing places I specifically had in mind, but places he wanted me to see that I didn't even really understand the importance to the, to the uh, in, during Occupy Paris and the French resistance. And, and he really helped me shape the trajectory of the story. That was a really uh, invaluable trip. How serendipitous to oh. have found him. Yes. So how, mu how much of the framework of the book do you think you had before you went to Paris? Well, I had um, like a five-page synopsis. So I had it pretty well figured out. But, um, but there was a couple of characters one in history that I decided to weave in. There was like a kind of one of the kind of high climax points of the book takes place at the Passy Metro Station staircase, which is... Um, on the cover, and so that was one of the places we visited. That you know, a, several, a few incidents had happened um, with the French resistance and the Nazis in that area of Paris. Um, so that that became a big part of the story. So things like that, that like you, and you just have to see them and feel them, and you know, street names and look and cafes. I, I mean, I, all those little details are so important, and you can look at Google Maps, but it's not the same as as being there. So. Oh, so I'm sure that that really like help propel you along. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it really, really did. And he was just fantastic. He did. A, he was so help, so helpful. Wow. So I wonder if now there'll be, once we can travel again, there'll be people coming over and booking his tour. Oh, I know. Yeah, he's fabulous. In relation to the Secret yes. Stealers. That's great. <laughs> That's right. So um, I, I wanted to uh, ask you a kind of a literary question. I can't, I should have written down what, what author wrote this. But um, here's a quote that I wanted to get your opinion on. One of my biggest notes when I review the first 10 pages, your job in the first 10 pages as a writer is to ask questions that the rest of the book answers. Leave the questions unanswered for as long as possible. That's what gives opening pages tension and life. I had never thought about that before because I'm a big, uh, person on endings, on that endings of books, if, if a book has a bad ending, I just get furious. <laughs> but I never really thought so much about the beginning and what it takes to capture interest. What do you, what do you think about that? I, I, think, I think that's true. I think I agree with that. I also think that, um, you know, I think it's important to start maybe not exactly at the, an inflection point for the main character, but close to one where, where there's a before and after, like something is about to change in their life. Ah. So I, I think about that because, um, and I, I think that takes a lot for writers to learn. It took me a long time where I'd put, you know, with the Saturday Evening Girls Club, the first 20 pages I realized was all backstory yeah. in my first draft, you know, when it's like, no, you have to start at a point where things are about to change. And that keeps the reader reading because they want to know what this new world and what this new path is going to look like. That's, that's great. And I, I had never thought about it, but now I think from now on, as I read books, <laughs> I'm going to be like, okay, did they get this in the first yeah, 10 pages? Yeah. So um, one other, we, I mentioned how you have this great ability to weave in real life characters and fictional characters. And I was hoping you'd do a brief reading of 
uh, kind of one of the highlights of the book as far as real, real life characters, and I'm not going to give it away to uh, the viewers and listeners. I'm going to ask you to read about this, this yes. person. Uh, when I this is a true story, almost verbatim from research, and when I heard this story, I was like, oh, I absolutely have to put this in, so <laughs> I will read this. Um, okay. So Anna is in the office, office of of, in Donovan's office, and there's a knock on the door. So just then there was another knock, and Maggie Griggs was at the door of the outer office wearing one of her signature plaid skirts, this one green and navy blue. Ma Maggie Griggs is like the HR woman. Good morning, I said. Good morning, Anna, she said. The general's 8 o'clock interview is here. She had an, an expression I couldn't quite decipher and it seemed she was trying to silently communicate something with her eyes. Ah, yes, I said, glancing down at the calendar. I remember the name because it's John Wayne. So funny, just like the act, like the actor. No, miss, I, oh, I should do the deep voice of John Wayne. No, miss, I am the actor, John Wayne said in a low, <laughs> slow voice I would recognize anywhere. He was standing in my office next to Maggie now, giving me that understated smile that had launched his movie career. I jumped up and glanced over at Julia, who appeared beyond delighted that this was happening. There was another co-worker in the office. Oh, um, I'm sorry, I, forgive me, Mr. Wayne, I said, holding out my hand, more than a little bit starstruck. He was a huge bear of a man, a long, lumbering six-foot-four. I'm Anna. Nice to meet you, he said. That smile again. And I'm Julia McWilliams, Julia said, shaking his hand and pumping up, up and down so hard I thought I might have to intervene. What a thrill this is. I am just an enormous fan, and I'm from Southern California, like you. You don't say, he said, smiling wider now. Whereabouts? Pasadena, Julia said. Not far from Glendale, John said. Um, Anna, could you go in and let the general know Mr. Wayne is here, Maggie asked. You know, you know he's got quite a full day. Oh, yes, yes, of course, I said, as John and Julia kept talking. I tried to stop staring at him, not quite believing he was standing in the middle of my office. I noticed the traffic in the hallway had increased. Women from far-flung departments just happened to be strolling by our corner on the first floor. Mr. Wayne, you can have a seat. I motioned to the chairs across from my desk as Maggie and Julia said their goodbyes, Maggie literally dragging Julia off by the arm. <laughs> I knocked and stepped through Donovan's door and shut it behind me. He was lost in thought, looking at his walls, wall of maps. Sir, Mr. John Wayne is here to see you? As in the movie star John Wayne? What? Donovan said, frowning. Then he rolled his eyes, coming back to reality. Oh, yes, right. You can send him in. Sorry, Anna. I've got a lot on my mind, and I don't really have time to talk to Hollywood types this morning. May I ask what he's doing here? He's got some connections at the White House, so we let him fill out an application, Donovan said, looking up at me, eyebrows raised. He glanced down at the papers in front of him. On his application here, he says the reason he thinks he'd be a good spy is because he's an actor and is a very good horseback rider. You can't be serious, I said, trying not to laugh. I wish I was joking, Donovan said with a tight smile. I appreciate his willingness to serve, but he's really not a fit for undercover work, is he? I get calls from Hollywood all the time wanting to help, actors, directors, producers, and some of them work out. We've got a couple directors in the OSS field unit, but it's not like I can stick John Wayne undercover in a village in Italy and just hope nobody there has ever gone to an American movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's I th just the mental picture that came with that scene was so <laughs> was so 
great and hilarious. Oh, and thank you. Know, you. In, to their credit, a lot of Hollywood actors did volunteer. I know, I think Jimmy Stewart and, but, and, and Henry Fonda, and I think they went in and they just went in and served. You know, yes, they didn't yeah. do like grandstandy things like that. Yeah, and well, it was interesting. I got into like this nerdy discussion on Twitter with some spy history nerds, and because at the end of the war, John Wayne was received a OSS um, certificate of like a merit certificate or certificate <laughs> of service, like an honor. I think it was like an honorary service degree. And um, and so I, I, we were going back and forth, like maybe he did really serve with the OSS, but because there was some rumors that he served with the OSS in the Pacific while he was shooting a movie there. Um, but I, I honestly, I think that um, it was just because he was so he, he was a patriot and he wanted to serve, so they gave him the certificate at the end of the war. I haven't <laughs> found anything to show that he actually did serve in you know the OSS. I just I really loved that scene, and I thought that was another like perfect blending of real life people and and fictional people. Oh, Even though there you. probably was somebody at while Bill Donovan's office who had to deal with John Wayne at the time. Oh yeah, yeah. Wouldn't <laughs> you have loved to have been a fly on the wall? Yeah. Like that's so great. So um, we're, we're running low on time, so I'm going to read um, one quote from your book that I, that I was particularly drawn to, and uh, this is another thought that I had never had before. Um, this is towards the end of the book. I had grown to understand that being fearless was not living without fear, but pushing through and doing what needed to get done in spite of that fear. So that was... I thought that was really profound. Oh, thank you. Um, and so I can ask you like where you get the ideas for which book you're gonna write and how you blend fictional, and, but, but that's just like a, a beautiful writerly thought that I really wanted to compliment you on. I think when I read and I come up with, and, and I find quotes that uh, resonate with me, it's because it's something that I had never thought of before. And I think that um, did you ever experience like like a fear, really fearful situation where you were able to come out on the other side and think of that, or is that strictly like writerly imagination? No, I think there uh, certainly I, I, you know, I, I th that was something that I think is a theme running through the book, along with the fact that like courage comes out of love, love of country, love of family, love of self, and um, and and. Being fearless means pushing, pushing beyond it, and just doing the thing, even when you don't feel. I mean, writing a book is terrifying to me, <laughs> and <laughs> okay. so. And, but you know, put, you got to push those feelings down. It's not on a grand scale as as like going undercover as a spy. But yeah, I think I, I really believe that. And it's funny that you 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 use that quote. You said that quote um, kind of um, was profound and I thank you so much but and that's one of the most according to Kindle one of the most underlined quotes in the ah. novel actually so it's you're not the only one that that uh, you know thought about that particular oh I line. wanted to be the first but okay <laughs> I'll take it um, so what are you working on next because I know you are working on something I am although I'll be honest with the pandemic and the girls. Um, I have two teenage girls who have been home at school most of the year, and my husband's been working from home most of the year, so it's gone slower than I like. Um, but I am working on another. It's historical fiction, 
Um, I will share that it's a World War II, but I'm totally superstitious, so I can't say okay. more than that. It's too early days to, <laughs> to share, but, right. I, but you'll be one of the first to know. Of All course. right, and when is that anticipated to be out? Well, I'm not even on contract yet, so I'm going to pitch it to my editors. So, um, But I think that um, every other year is, is an aggressive schedule for me. I'd say, yeah, I mean, that's you're, our, you're my second uh, most, uh, the author who's appeared on the show, second number of times, most <laughs> number of times, I didn't say that right. The person who's ahead of you also writes in multiple genres, so you oh, know, okay. and he, he seems to be popping out books like... He's busy. Yeah, <laughs> right, I don't, five God times bless those year. people. Yeah, I don't <laughs> they're lucky. So, um, Jane, I want to thank you so much for thank being you. with me today and being here in person. It's just a thrill. And um, I will, of course, uh, have you on when, uh, when your next book comes out, and this is the 90th book stew which i'm very proud of and you've been three of those episodes thank um, you so thank you for coming on and book stew viewers and listeners i wanted to give you a preview of or my june guest will be tia williams who's uh interesting an author and she also has a background in like beauty and beauty products and working for those type of like magazines like vogue and stuff like that so her background sounds fascinating to me and I will look forward to seeing you again in June. Happy vaccinations to everybody and good night.